Um, Henry Nowen. We got anybody that's heard of Henry Nowen? Uh, if you're really onto it, his name's Henri, because uh, he's Dutch. Um, he's a Catholic priest. He's kind of a big deal. He died maybe 25 years ago or so. And uh, his book sold uh, over 7 million copies. He wrote 39 books. Uh, not only did he write a lot, he taught us in prestigious institutions, Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame, uh, among them. And uh, he's kind of a big deal. He's kind of an important Christian leader uh, in the last hundred years. But he left his post as a professor for a new vocation late in his life. It seemed very out of line with his professional trajectory. And he went to live in a community called La Arche. L'Arche is an organization uh, where there are 153 of these homes across around the world. And they're homes where the disabled live with those who assist them. They share life together as responsible adults. And in each of these communities, every single adult, both those who have a limitation and those who assist them, have an expectation that they can grow into mature and growing adults. And they can make contributions to society regardless of their limitations. And when, after living there for a few years, now it writes an autobiography called In the Name of Jesus. And here's one of, the, one of his paragraphs. He said, My movement from Harvard to L'Arche made me aware in a new way how much my own thinking about Christian leadership had been affected by the desire to be relevant. The desire for popularity, desire for power. Too often I looked at being relevant, popular, and powerful as ingredients for an effective ministry. Yet Jesus sends us to places where we would rather not go. He asks us to move from a concern for relevance to a life of prayer. From worries about popularity to communal and mutual ministry. And from a leadership built on power to a leadership in which we critically discern where God is leading us and our people. The people of L'Arche are showing me new ways. I'm a slow learner. Old patterns that have proven effective are not easy to give up. But as I think about true Christian leadership, I do believe that those from whom I least expected to learn are showing me the way. Intriguing, isn't it? Here's a person with incredible influence who's teaching at the most elite academic institutions in the world. And he chooses to live with those who have intellectual and physical disabilities in order to assist them. We're used to living life as this upward path, aren't we? Towards some kind of elevation where we will finally be justified. This upward path includes family, includes professional achievements, and there's no looking back. There's this assumption, and this is the assumption that Nowen turns on its head. He chooses humility. He's living into Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Yet this is just one path to become humble, is to choose it. There's another path towards humility, and it's the one that Jesus forces on you. And this is what Jesus does to Paul when he gives him this metaphorical thorn in the flesh. This is what Jacob wrestling with God is all about. See, Jesus loves you and me too much to let us remain arrogant in any way. 
Jesus coming, is coming after you. He's coming after me that we might become humble. He'll use our sin. He'll use painful circumstances. He'll use anything to get us there. It's painful, I know. But I think if we're honest, it's what we really want in life. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that of course he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about, any, he will not be thinking about himself at all. See, those are the kind of people you want to be around. This is the kind of person that you want to become. And the journey there is painful. We see that in our text today as we move through the Gospel of Luke. This is chapter 1. We'll start in verse 57. And we'll read all the way through verse 80. Read along with me. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and said, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to the people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. Now this is the first we've heard from Zechariah since verse 23. Verses 5 to 23, you see what happens. You see what happens when 
an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah when he is serving in the temple. And when the angel appears, he tells him great news. Zechariah, your wife, Elizabeth, who's old and barren, is going to have a son. Not just any son, but a son that will bring joy to many. A son that will go before the Lord to prepare a way for him. A prophet in the line of Elijah. But Zechariah doesn't believe. He doubts. And right there he is given discipline. And as a rebuke for his unbelief, the angel who bore good news to him takes away his ability to speak. And now Zechariah is mute for nine months. And when we ended in verse 23, we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he's going to respond with these nine months of muteness. We don't know how he's going to respond to the discipline that he's been given from the Lord. And if you think about it, if you imagine, if you were Zechariah, how might you have responded? Well, I think one way might have been that you would have been angry. You would have asked, what does God expect from me other than unbelief? I mean, I'm old. My wife's old. There's got to be some room for me to ask some questions. There's got to be some room for me to warm up to this whole idea of having a son who's going to be a great prophet. And I'm an old man. Now, if this is the way Zechariah did respond, he's essentially asking God to be understanding of his unbelief. It would be easy if you were Zechariah in this instance to just chalk this up to God being overly rigid, overly difficult, and perhaps even harsh. And essentially what Zechariah would have been doing is clinging to his perceived moral goodness and he'd be minimizing his sin. And don't you and I do the same. We tend to paint ourselves in extraordinarily positive light. We're slow to see our sin and its effects. So in turn, we just get mad at God. That's one way you could have responded if you were Zechariah in this instance. Another one is that you could have sunk deep into shame. I mean, here he is, Zechariah is a priest. His wife's of priestly limit, is of a priestly lineage. They're both, in chapter 1 of Luke, described as righteous and blameless. And when the angel shows up, he's performing the most sacred practice in his craft. So both his profession and his character point to him being able to believe what the angel has told him, but he doesn't. So it would be quite natural for Zechariah to sulk his shoulders and sink down into self-hatred and swim in the waters of shame, assuming that God wants nothing to do with strugglers like him. So when you leave Zechariah in verse 23, you should be wondering, is he angry? Is he deeply ashamed? How is he going to come out of this? Well, we don't know until we get to our text today. Because the last 30 or so verses have been devoted to Mary. And it's in our passage that we see that though Zechariah is righteous, though he is blameless, it doesn't mean that the Lord's done working on him. There's new ground for humility to spring up in Zechariah. And Zechariah is going to shuck off the temptation of minimizing his sin. He's going to shuck off the temptation 
to think that his sin is going to disqualify him from God doing a deeper work in him. And you see it in our text. Do you see when the curse is lifted in our text? When is it? It's when, when is he able to speak? It's right after he writes those words on a tablet. When he writes those words, his name is John. When he writes those words after the crowd has asked him what his newly born son's name is going to be. And this is the name that the angel gave Zechariah when Zechariah was offering the incense. So when Zechariah writes his name on the tablet, it's essentially an act of obedience. It's a sign of his maturity. It's a sign that Zechariah has pushed through his nine plus month trial to show that he believes that God can work on a sinner like him. See, if Zechariah refused for God to do this inner work these last nine months, he would have, instead of writing his name as John, he could have written, I don't deserve this son. There are more, more worthy parents in the world than I who deserve a son like him. If he'd have wrote that, he'd been living in a shame. He could have written in his anger, I don't want to father the first prophet God sent to his people in 400 years. He could have written, he's not a good God. I have no interest in being a part of his plan. If he would have, he'd be living into his anger. But he does neither. He writes his name as John. And Zechariah is speaking as a more humble man. Now, I don't know about you. But I sure am encouraged by this. Here's this old head who still needed to grow. Much like Henry Nouwen. And the older I get, the more tempting it is to see that the Christian life is one to be mastered as opposed that the Christian life is one to be maintained. See, weeds are always growing in the gardens of our souls and they always need to be dug out. Pruning will always be necessary on this side of glory. And Zechariah shows us that the way of life is character. It's not giftedness. It's not best practices. It's about learning from your mistakes. It's about becoming less arrogant after our periods of discipline. And most of all, it's about singing. Do you see Zechariah's chief emotion in verse 67? It's not relief. (laughs) He's not like, I sure am glad I can finally talk. Verse 67, he's joyful. And anytime you grow in, in faith, the main expression is always jubilant praise. You get on the other side of a trial and you see how faithful God's been and it makes you want to sing. See, these were really tough days for Zechariah. He's been wrestling with his skepticism. He's been wrestling with his doubt. I'm sure he had periods of anger. I'm sure he had periods of shame. God has laid a heavy hand on him and he's made him mute. But whether you believe instantly like Mary and Elizabeth or whether you're a cynic like Zechariah, God wants you to sing a song. Zechariah's been thinking for a long time these last nine months. He's been working out his theology these last nine months. He's got something important to say. And the important things he's got to say, it doesn't come out in a lecture. It comes out in a song. And when we look at his song, I think we can learn two things. The first thing I think we learn is that we 
can learn that we need the scriptures. See, Zechariah has been in the scriptures his whole life. Remember, he's described as a blameless and righteous man, and he's a priest. It's kind of his job. So the scriptures have shaped his thinking. They've shaped his living. And now they've shaped his singing. Because essentially his song is one big Old Testament mashup. During these nine months, he's going to need the scriptures. One older friend of mine, an older saint that I know, he had a stack of index cards with Bible verses on them. And he took them with him every time he went in for a cancer treatment. Might seem cheesy to you, but he told me this story and he said, I needed to feed myself during this trial of affliction because my temptations were many. The temptation towards shame, the temptation towards anger were great. So brother and sister, when you're suffering, you're going to need God's word. You need to feed upon it when life is tough. Because on the other side of it, you're going to sing it. The second thing I think we see in his song is that the truth needs to be personal for us. All right, I'm going to go uh, all linguistic nerd on you for just a minute. I need you to look at this stuff with me. So look at verse 69. Verse 69, it says that he raised up a horn of salvation for us. All right, keep these numbers going now. You ready? Get your hands out. For us, verse 69, verse 71, that we, first person plural, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Show the mercy promised to our fathers. 73 and 74, our father Abraham, to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies. Serve him all our days. The tender mercy of our God. The sunrise may visit us. Verse 79, guide our feet in the way of peace. How many is that? How many you got? 13. Sarah Jane's on it over here. Logan's got an engineering degree he can't count today. <laughs> That's 13 uses of the first person plural pronoun in 11 verses. First person plural pronoun, let me remind you, that's us, our, we. Think of his other pronouns he could have used. He could have used a singular, couldn't he? Me, my, I, but he doesn't. He could have used third person. They, them, but he doesn't. Why? Why does he use first-person plural pronouns? It's because he's trying to rope these people into singing with him. All the things that are true for him, Zechariah, the one who's been through the trial, are also true for all those who are standing there. Now remember the scene from our reading. you got Elizabeth. She's got John the Baptist, baby John the Baptist, taken to be circumcised on the eighth day. you got Zechariah, the mute dad. And you've got a crowd, and they're all standing there in great wonder that this old woman has given birth. And sure, the crowd's not gone through a period of muteness for, of muteness for not believing 
prophecy that's been spoken by an angel. But they're going to go through some other trial. They would go through some trial where God would be trying to work humility into them. And Zechariah knows it. And he's trying to persuade them to join him in his singing. And I think that's why Luke puts it in here. I think it's why he puts it in here for his readers. Readers like you and me because he's trying to get us to sing too. In this Christmas season, you might be in the middle of your discipline. It's painful. Zechariah could tie his muteness back to a very specific event. And maybe you can tie your period of discipline back to a specific event as well. But maybe you can't. You don't know why life's hard. Well, this song sits right here in Luke 1 to encourage you to hold on. Because a day is going to come when you're going to sing. And maybe that day is today. And if you do sing, it's going to be because you see the Jesus of Hebrews 5.8. Hebrews 5.8 reads, although he was a son, Jesus, although Jesus was a son, he learned. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Does that sound heretical to you? That Jesus had to learn obedience? I mean, sure, it makes sense that Zechariah would have to learn obedience, that he would have to learn humility. Sure, it makes sense that me and you have to learn humility. But for Jesus to learn humility? But what we so often forget is that Jesus, too, was a man. And one of the many reasons God put on flesh was so that you could see that Jesus sympathizes with you in your time of discipline. And he knows how hard it is to learn obedience in the midst of your suffering. And when you see Jesus there, when you see that Jesus is there sympathizing with you in your discipline, when that sinks deep into your heart, you're going to sing. You can sing even if your circumstances don't change. But maybe you don't have the lyrics to sing. Well, can I suggest a few? Can I suggest a few from Luke chapter 1? See, Jesus is the one who has brought salvation to you. Jesus is the one who has forgiven you of sin. Jesus is the one who has shown tender mercy to you. Jesus is the one who has made the sunrise visit you from on high. And Jesus is the one who has given you light in your darkness, brother and sister. And I pray that this is your song this Christmas season. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that the sunrise has visited us from on high today. Lord, that you have given us light in our darkness. That you have forgiven us of our sins. That you have brought salvation to us. And Lord, that your mercy is tender. Oh, Lord, it doesn't seem tender in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our discipline. But Lord, we want to believe it. Would you help our unbelief? We pray these things in your name. Amen.